0: So Marion Horvat is one of the founders of the apostolate Tradition in Action, and she is a prominent traditional thinker and educator. Tradition in Action is committed to defending the perennial magisterium of Holy Mother Church and Catholic traditions, and also works for a restoration of Christian civilization adapted to contemporary historical circumstances. Dr Horvat holds a degree in journalism and a master's and doctorate in medieval history from the University of Kansas. And her speciality is in cultural history with a background in teaching, first in teaching Western civilization, the great book, books program at the University of Kansas, as well as serving as a principal and founder of private Catholic independent schools in Kansas and Texas. In addition, she has assisted for many years. Families establishing homeschooling. She is also the author of several books, including Catholic Manual of Civility and Restoring the Family. Dr. Horvat, welcome to Vonday Radio.
1: Thank you. you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I think that um, Tradition in Action is one of the uh, great resources and archives of, of material that are available to uh, counter-revolutionary traditional Catholics online today. I found that it's a, a great source of very interesting and I would say unique articles, many of which have been penned by yourself, in the, the counter-revolutionary tradition following the the thought of Dr. Plinio Correa de Oliveira and where you have written particularly lucidly i have found is as i mentioned before cultural history and the the deep tendencies that animate a human culture um, spirituality as it is expressed in tendencies in customs and in ambiences and so having read your book the catholic manual of civility which i think is more than a, a book of rules it's a a manual on the formation of character as a foundation of courtesy, and I'd just like to preface our interview with the remarks of His Holiness Pope Leo the Thirteenth, who said, "Civility and urbanity in customs strongly predisposes minds to attain wisdom, and follow the light of truth." End quote, which you quote in your your manual. So, I would like to begin by asking you to to please elaborate on the Catholic understanding of civility and urbanity in customs and why they are essential to Catholic civilization.
1: Um, that question alone is enough for a book, but we will try to address it here a bit. Um, perhaps I'll take a little detour to start, which is um, which I believe will be helpful for Catholics to understand. When Our Lady of Good Success appeared to Mother Mariana, in the 1600s. One of the most impressive prophecies that have come to Catholics for our day, and that has made a deep impression on Catholics, was when the light in the tabernacle was extinguished and Mother Mariana asked the meaning, and Our Lady explained to her that meaning for the 20th century. She said that the light that was extinguished would represent the almost total extinguishing of the light of faith in the Catholic souls. I believe most Catholic traditionalists understand that, after Vatican II, we had in the Church an almost total extinguishing up to our time. We can see it particularly in this reign of Francis. But all the tendential things happened in the reigns of all the popes preceding him. We had religious liberty, ecumenism, John Paul II, the Sixth, Benedict, Benedict the Sixteen, continued continue those, those policies and furthered them, and Francis, Francis only took them to their final consequences. But Catholics understand that, and they want to see a relighting of the light of faith. They want now, traditional Catholics, good liturgy, beautiful music, the pomp, the circumstance of the Catholic Church. They want to see again the processions, the cassocks on the priests wearing them full time, the altar boys dressed appropriately, nuns again in the full habit. They want a return to the lighting of the light of faith in souls. The second part, though, of extinguishing of the light in the tabernacle is the one that many Catholics ignore. Our Lady said, It also represented that it would be a time with, quote, an almost total and general corruption of customs. Filthy waters of a flood of impurity would inundate the streets of sin, causing a cultural corruption. I add the word culture, but this is in the vein that she was speaking, so complete that the innocence of children would be almost completely destroyed. Modesty would almost no longer be found in women, And there would be almost no virgin souls. The no virgin souls is a um, consequence of the corruption of modesty and innocence. So what was she speaking about? She was talking about a cultural revolution that would take place in history, in society, in regions, in families. And it would touch the depths of Catholic souls and families. Here in the United States where we had less or better, not as good customs as in Catholic countries in South America, you might expect this, but this occurred throughout the world. You had a corruption of customs. I believe that Catholics have to realize that we have to have a return of the discipline, the decorum, the urbanity, that um, Pope Leo XIII said he recommended. I believe it's not just a recommend, recommendation, it's a necessity. Christian civilization was born from good, the religious and temporal spheres working together, hand in hand. As the customs, the hierarchy, the social elevation developed in the Church with all her beauty, it occurred at the same time in temporal society. When we have a return to that, we will have the restoration of Christian civilization. It is not just a return in the religious sphere. I want to stress that there was always, under the guidance of the Catholic Church, developing Christian civilization in the spiritual and temporal, that it was always an upward movement. You had an upward movement in liturgy, but you had an upward movement in society, in manners, clothing, ceremonies ways of dressing each other, speaking to each other, the way a husband and wife would treat each other and their children. That represents that inside society, that you acknowledged social differences in the way you dressed, in the way you treated people. And all of this took place under the beautiful guardianship of the Catholic Church. So we have what grew up as a Catholic civilization. There is no healthy civilization without this development of sound customs and morals based on the love of God. Good treatment of others and elevated manners are a result, not of manners books. They're a result of the love of God and the love of neighbor. And this is what the Catholic Church stressed. Dr. Paneo Correa de Oliveira said something I thought was very beautiful in one of our articles on our site he said when a person is a saint his moral conduct is perfect and his behavior toward others is exemplary it means not only are his morals perfect but his way of behavior is perfect that's why a christian civilization produced saints that's why today the civilization we have the best we do is produce good people but not saints Because it takes the perfect moral character and the perfect behavior toward others that gives sanctity. And it's strange, but in Christian civilization, you could produce this with peasants. You could have peasants who had perfect understanding of good behavior toward others, manners, customs that came from their parents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, all the way back of watching the good example and manners. Constantly improving. And it gave us science. You see what we have today. I'm going to discuss now just a little bit about how, what is urbanity? You asked those words. Would you like to, to know or would you like to add something at this point?
0: Well, you've made some very profound points we think are are so important. And I would just say that one of the articles that I read that you wrote that really prompted my getting in contact with you was a comparison of a pro-life march uh, in our own time yes. and a revolutionary march of some kind in the 1960s. And you pointed out that the the hippies, the, the revolutionaries in the, the 60s, some of them were actually more modestly dressed or, or more uh, elegantly dressed uh, more becoming than than some of the pro-life marches and this this really i think touches on something that's so important there are there are catholics today who who consider themselves orthodox and, and think that well i pro-life i'm against contraception i think that theology of the body I mean, or, or i don't something. hear what you're saying but they think that they are completely orthodox in this way and they they don't understand the fundamental incoherence of the pro-life movement in not addressing chastity and modesty and contraception, it generates, uh, it fails to address the abortive mentality, which is generated by customs, ambiences, uh, culture. And, and I think that until the the whole is addressed, the, the Catholic whole, you know, the universal, then
1: unfortunately abortion will, will continue. It's been to me the failure of the Catholic pro-life movement There's two failures. One is on the doctrinal level. They have joined in ecumenism, allowing Protestant pro-life leaders to lead marches, to join in prayer with them, which a Catholic can watch them pray, and they can invite them to pray with them. They should never join in prayer with a sect that is not Catholic, that is um, heretical or systematic. That's one aspect. The second is exactly what you addressed and what I addressed in my, in my um, article. There's an absolute necessity to be coherent in what you speak and say. You cannot um, dress and act worse than the hippies of the 60s, sitting on the floor, shorts, terrible shorts, in modest tank tops, um, men in their shorts, T-shirts, tennis shoes, and... Um, big boys no one practicing a discipline that is demanded by Catholic courtesy and, and rules no one practicing the modesty that is demanded and I don't mean by modesty wearing pants that cover your legs it's it's you're already entering the realm of immodesty when you when you um, show your legs in that way for women it's a modesty that is the Catholic modesty and if we had a Whole group of men leading the pro-life movement dressed appropriately, acting appropriately, with a great politesse, with a great vigilance, with a great militancy, a Catholic militancy, I believe the movement would be successful. We would have more victories. Instead we had lack of coherency. And what I say right now is something that would make people more furious than calling them a heretic or praying with heretics, because what people don't want is a challenge to their customs, because a challenge to the customs demands a whole new way of being and acting. You have to put off the t-shirt, the tennis shoes and baseball hat, dress appropriately, which then demands a way of sitting, which then demands a way of carrying yourself, of bearing, constant bearing. You can't just flop down you have to sit, and you should sit with a proper bearing that reflects a Catholic sense of your own dignity and the presence of God, being in the presence of God. All these things would, are what challenge people, and they don't want to hear. They don't mind if the priest tells them to say another rosary or begin an novena or fast, but ask them to change their customs. And I wish more priests from the pulpit would do this. Because if they did, it would have much more effect than me sitting here telling Mr. Howard to change customs. If the priests would preach this, they would understand that the cultural revolution is deeply entwined in the spiritual revolution. And if people would change their habits. There was always a point of contention for me to see men who said to women, You should wear skirts, be modest. And I would look at them and they would be in their blue jeans and t-shirt and baseball cap. sloppy, Sloppy, irreverent, at mass, mass. and think if you would give the example the women would follow. It's been that way throughout history. Any order that is founded, the women watch the beauty of Saint Benedict, of Saint Dominic, of any order, and you find the women following. I believe it falls to the men to lead a family, to bear themselves, and to demand of their wives and children to represent them, to represent their name in a way that has dignity, decorum, refinement. If men did this, women would follow. When women are the ones who tell their daughters, be modest, that's not modest. So often, because of the revolutionary spirit today that exists, daughters resist. They take off an angry face, they become, but if a father steps up, and gives that command. It's amazing how a daughter responds in a different way, because there's a kind of innate understanding that the authority should come from the man. And when the woman is given the job of the man to be the moral compass for a family, instead of the man taking that job and being the moral compass. Something happened here in the United States. I'm not certain if it happened in England that way, but it became kind of a law that the man makes the money and provides the house and takes care of the car and maybe rototillers the garden. But the woman makes all the moral decisions for the family and all the guidelines for what we do in religion and social, the whole social sphere. And that is a grand mistake that began to be made, I'm afraid, in your country, with the social etiquette books that instead of being written by men, we're taken over by women yes, and as trend. it yes please
0: sorry I just, that, that is a trend that leo the 13th identifies at the end of the 19th century that religion was becoming the the realm of the domestic sphere purely and the domain of of the woman of the household rather than be, the man being led by the man and being a public religion And that, in a way, is the story of the 19th century, is a civilization being held together by the piety of of mainly of women. Because in the 18th century, um, many men, especially amongst the elites, had had rejected God. Um, And so with men rejecting Christ above them, women in the 20th century came to reject man
1: above them. Um, I believe this happened more in the Protestant countries than in the Catholic countries. You will see in the 19th, even into the early 20th century, the mid-20th century, in many Catholic countries, the man remained um, head of the family. But what Pope Leo XIII pointed out well in the religious sphere, Dr. Plinio pointed out something to me that opened up a wider horizon, a broader spectrum. And that is that he who controls the social sphere controls the family. And in England, it became a rather matriarchal society in that the women became not the control of the many things of the men remain manly, but they took over the social relationships. What we're going to do today, what party we're going to, where we're, what we're doing, and how we do it with their etiquette books. And the etiquette books, that came from England were copied here in the United States with our Emily Post and Amy Vanderbilt. And they were an empty set of rules. They were empty because they no longer relied on the love of God and the practice of virtue as the basis of courtesy, of manners. And so it became a veneer, a shell. And it was very easy for the 60s, the revolution, the culture revolution of the hippies, to crack that veneer because it was empty, there was not, it's like the Anglican religion, it's an empty empty shell, because there's not real virtue that's behind it. It's like an English gentleman's club that you go to, you appear, you have a little bit of the veneer of the past, especially in the music and the ceremony which English always love, and I commend you for that, because that's one of the greatest qualities, in my opinion, of the English, is they're still grasping to some kind of ceremony and pomp but it's empty, it's a shell. And so were the courtesy and manners. And those manners books were nothing more than things you do to get ahead in society, to appear well, to be popular. And the hippies of the sixties made that accusation and they were correct. And that's why they could go forward so easily. Real manners, real courtesy, are books like the one by St. Francis de Sales, The Manual of Catholic Civility and Decorum, which I highly suggest that you read and others read as well, because he says that man, real etiquette, real civility, is based on virtue, Catholic virtue, the love of God, and the love of neighbor. All rules depend upon those, the heart of it is there. If you have that idea then you have a manners and an etiquette and a refinement that isn't empty but it's filled with catholic truths and teachings there's no manner that doesn't have a reason for being it's based on virtue and um, when i started to realize that i realized how important it was that we have that restoration um, all the first manners books by the way it's kind of interesting to know that the very Hugh of St. Victor, who was in the 11th century. He wrote much about necessity for Catholic refinement. His school, the school of Hugh of St. Victor, would later be taken up by St. Bonaventure, many of the ideas. They liked to find the symbolism and the meaning of every action and refer back to the absolute. The absolute of any action should always reach toward perfection. And that perfection is to ultimately reach the perfection of the the absolute, which is God. So every manner, every way of being, every dress, your furniture, the things around you, should all be heading toward that absolute, which is God. This is what inspired Catholic civilization to constantly move up in the ambiences that surround you. Some of this, you can see it at the height of the Middle Ages in the castles. Some of this broke, of course, in the Renaissance, when there was an emphasis on man, and we lost one note that should be present in every building, every room, even in our burying, our ambiences, and that is that note of austerity, which should reflect a love of the cross. And if you take a room and make it only a room for man, even if it's a beautiful Renaissance room, it's already missing something of the Catholic spirit that will not imbue your son's soul with a love for the cross or your daughter's soul with the spirit of sacrifice. So it's that understanding of how a mentality imbues an ambience and that ambience feeds the soul that makes the Catholic civilization. You see today what happened in the ambiences that we made. They're miserable like the church that is emerging from Vatican II. Everything is for efficiency, practicality, no more sense of sacrifice in the setting of the table so that the daughters and the sons as well, but particularly the ladies, learn that there is an effort involved that is for God and for it creates a um, amiability in, in the family home and in every meal. From the first to the last, but especially in banquets and with others, that it takes an effort. All that is done. We've used paper napkins, paper plates, um, casual ways of being. All of that lost. It's very interesting, though, to see what is lost. Again, we miss it in the church. We and when we ask the priest to wear a cassock all the time, we're asking him for an effort. When we ask for the church to be beautiful. It means we have to clean the church and keep it that way, and that it's a lot more effort than a mere table. I remember a very revolutionary old woman, an aunt of mine, who when I returned to tradition, I said, but don't you miss the beautiful church? And she said with a horrible sneer in her voice, you didn't have to clean that altar like I did. And she hated the altar. The beautiful broke our altars that we admire so much today because she resented cleaning. You see in that the spirit of the revolution, practicality. For the glory of God, we should be willing to do anything, including dress decently in the daytime, to wear hosiery instead of the bare feet that no one thought about for women or men to show your feet. It's unseemly John. Baptiste de La Salle said, to show your bare legs. He was talking about men, but he wouldn't even have imagined it for women. Strangely, until the 60s, in every good home, I went to a public high school in the 60s, and one of the rules was you had to wear a skirt and hose rake. You couldn't have bare feet. Today, you have these kind of tendential things that have happened that have lowered our standards and our sense of modesty and our sense of decorum. And we've lost that sense of pleasing our neighbor and the love of God, that we're always in his presence. And we've lost an innate sense of modesty because we keep showing more and more of our body. Men and women. At one time, no man, my father, would have never worn a pair of shorts. And I remember once my mother saw all her friend's husbands starting to wear shorts. And my father, who my brother calls the last peasant of America, he was from Croatia. And he never adapted adopted the American mentality. He was absolutely shocked that my mother could even suggest such a thing that he wear shorts because I never saw his legs, much less the rest of the world. There was a sense of modesty and decorum in that, even as the last peasant, he was certainly not a noble, but in the sense that you don't do these things. Mm -hmm. That was was false. false. And strangely, it's really started in the 60s. So you can see how far we went in a short period of time. Yes,
0: it's a falsehood that abounds today is that there are spheres of human activity that can be neutral Uh, politically, religiously, theologically. But the, the reality is that the way that I hold my cutlery, the clothes that I wear, the, the my bearing, my deportment, are political and are theological.
1: They Everything
0: are, yeah. that one does is, has uh, those dimensions. And a true Catholic vision would appreciate that, communicate the importance of it.
1: I'm afraid that you've just been very judgmental. Saying that you can tell a person by what they wear, or what the way they carry themselves, this is the modern myth, and we hear it now constantly. You can't be so judgmental. You can't know what a person is by what he, the way he dresses, by the way he walks, by the way he talks, by the way he laughs. But scriptures tells us otherwise. One of my when I came upon this in Ecclesiastics and it was in a commentary of Cornelius who We have it on our site. He elucidates on this, these lines from Ecclesiastics, and he tells us, this is true, and it is that we can discern a man's soul by his appearance. The attire of the body and the laughter of the teeth and the gait of the man show what he is from Ecclesiastics. So we, can, we have the, not only should we judge, We have the right to judge a man by his gait, his laughter, the tire of his body. And to me, this was um, extraordinary because you can tell everything by the way a man walks, talks. Um, Mr. Attila here, who is with us at um, Tradition Action, he has the idea that, um, or he had the belief that in the Tendential Revolution, the tennis shoe was very important for even changing the gait of man. Because tennis shoes used to be worn for tennis or sports, and you took them off and you put on a shoe. And he started knowing, noticing that they kept getting thicker, sole bouncier. And you put a child in tennis shoes, and they begin to walk with a little forward bounce. Their feet aren't solidly settled on the ground, and it gives, so to speak, that walk is already a step toward instability, because you're not walking. Firmly on the ground, like a man who sees the reality around him, and is judging it, they're bouncing. And I thought that was an interesting observation. Very much so. So many tendential things like that. The little swimsuits or, or sun dresses that came out for girls in the forties. And it was, oh, they're so cute and they're so innocent. But by putting a child who has a natural modesty into those clothing that show their whole body, you break the modesty, and we reach the stage what Our Lady predicted, there would be no more modesty in women, or breaking the modesty in their children at the early age of two, three, four, five, by accustoming them to showing their bodies. So why shouldn't they, by the time they're teenagers, be wearing the short shorts and bikinis and swimsuits and suddenly their parents say, oh, that's immodest. There's, an, there's a lack of congruity there. If It's immodest for my little four-year-old sister to be wearing these clothes. Why is it immodest for me? And if they don't say it consciously, you think it unconsciously. Mm-hmm. If there is continuity, congruity, logic coherence in a parent's attitude toward raising their child from the very beginning, The child begins to adopt that coherence, that understanding, and also their natural modesty is never broken. It's much harder to be immodest if you still have preserved your innocence, your natural modesty. Those are things that a serious parent should reflect upon instead of following the trends. I believe it, once again, if men would take up their roles, there would be a much better. Because women tend, by our we tend by our nature, to follow trends. And as long as worthy governors of what the family wears, does, and how they act, we tend, the whole family tends to follow trends. If a man gets a grasp of a principle and begins to understand it, it's a grace that God gives men because of their nature. He can carry it through to its final consequences and begin to act coherently in a family and make those demands. And a wife begins to respect her husband instead of just loving him. And I believe that love without respect isn't real love, just like love without admiration is not real love. You can admire and respect a person and grow to love him, but if you love a person and you don't admire and respect them, You very soon can end in divorce, and I believe that's what's happened today in so many marriages. Back to the um, scriptures, I just will give a few more quotes so that people aren't saying, I'm pulling these things out of my hat, because we are asked by scriptures to be judgmental and to understand the way we bear ourselves, what we wear is important. St. Pete said, the movement of the body demonstrates the habit of the mind. I'm going to saints now, out of scriptures and into saints, although I could give you many more from scriptures as well, because I started collecting these things. But I thought that was very beautiful. The movement of the body demonstrates the habit of the mind. You look at today's movements, everybody is in constant motion. Their faces show their, their grimaces. Um, ridiculous facial expressions. You see the way they're nervous, anxiety. No one can sit or stand straight for even the time span of a mass to sit with the proper deportment without leaning back onto the pew, without um, resting the derriere on the back of the second of the pew. And that's disgusting for children, but it's even more disgusting when you see men do that.
0: Because a man
1: should be upright. He should be like a sword, like the arrow for the family. Straight, um, direct, um, disciplined. um, So you see that the habit of the mind, of the modern mind is undisciplined, casual, vulgar. And it reflects in the movement of the body. There was in Catholic civilization always a tendency toward more beautiful, more elegant, more refined, more distinguished gestures, ways of being, and acting. Was that artificial and fake? No. It was a movement that was motivated by love of God, recognition of your own dignity, the dignity and respect you owe yourself and also to your neighbor. Today, we have no more sense of our own dignity, no more sense of respect or honor that we owe to our neighbor, and we have the postures, the positions, the clothing that we take and wear, which tend toward two things, egalitarianism, everyone can do the same, and vulgarity, because the egalitarianism always leads to vulgarity, just like the social hierarchy always leads to refinement. You take the common denominator and make that your ideal, You have the doctors, lawyers, and judges who suddenly take off the clothes that represent them in society and put on the tennis shoes and blue jeans and shorts like everyone else. When you have a social hierarchy and the highest element is the role model for society, the prototype, then you have all classes moving towards something higher, more elevated. It was the necessity of the revolution to break the classes. To break the First of all, the monarchy, because it was the highest model. Mm-hmm. The second was the nobility, because they became models not only of, um, of distinction, but of the practice of virtue. How many saints came from the nobles ranks? How many of those nobles? If you read any saint book, you'll find that very many did. They were striving for moral excellence, Just like they were striving for excellence in every sphere of their life to make their home more excellent, to make the music more excellent. And all of that filtered down into society and raised every level of the social classes in the spirit of admiration, not in the spirit of social conflict or um, hatred, class hatred. At the same time, the noble could admire the small. They enjoyed, they admired what they saw in the little people, so to speak, in the peasant and the workers. And there was a constant interplay between the two classes. This is Catholic civilization that has admiration at its base, not class hatred. Another, Saint Bernard, the spirit shows itself in the movement of the body. The carriage of the body is a signal of the soul. If you think about that, here's our great Saint Bernard, who shaped the whole 12, 1200s. He was, he was. No one did anything without Saint Bernard, um, the 12th century rather. When Hildegard von Bingen came under came under suspicion of heresy, the Pope sent Saint Bernard to investigate St. Hildegard. He spent a little time with St. Hildegard. He came back and he said, she's orthodox, she's very good, and that was enough. This was the authority of the St. Bernard. He said, the spirit shows itself in the movement of the body. The carriage of the body is the signal of the soul. This is the inspiration for Catholics to try to return to a good deportment that demands an enormous discipline, much more discipline than to go spend the night before the Blessed Sacrament in adoration, sitting cross-legged and leaning on the chairs, or even sleeping, because they, as they do at the Franciscan University, because it's more important to be in front of the Blessed Sacrament. It doesn't matter how you're dressed or look. It doesn't matter how you're dressed or look. If you appeared before a king in the 12th century dressed and looking and acting like that, you would have no audience. You would have you would be despised and thrown out before the by the guards before you reached there. We are before the king of kings, and that should demand the greatest discipline, respect, dignity. And if you can't maintain it, it's time to end the appointment, to leave, because you still are in the presence of the king. It's those are things that were lost. Um, in Emmanuel's civility that you spoke about, I have a whole chapter on that. The bearing especially of a young man and how he should carry himself. The um, book that I hope to come out soon would be a manual civility for girls because, unfortunately, the girls are trying to bear themselves and act like men today. They take on the same strident voice, although the men have become less strident and more feminine voice. (laughs) The men need today to practice the masculine voice, and the women need to practice the feminine voice. They need to practice a feminine demurity in the way of being instead of striding forward and walking like a man, acting like a man, being like a man. There was a way of being a woman, and the woman is always a reflection of Our Lady, her goodness, her femininity, her docility, her submission to the will of God and to those over her, and a um, gracefulness that is being lost. A man admired the delicacy and the grace of a woman. So what did the revolution want to do? Destroy the grace and delicacy of the woman.
0: Put her in sports, make
1: muscles, make her more and more like a man until we reach the stage, which should not be surprising, that the ideal is to be transgender or choose your own sex because you've lost the ideal of your own sex you've lost even the notion of it. So you're happy. And unfortunately, the same thing has happened with men, a kind of tendency toward the feminine. If you have a boy and you hear him talking with a whining little voice, it's time to talk to him and say, you have to take and speak like a man. I meet many traditionalist leaders, young ones, who, um, or budding leaders, who would do well to begin to practice a more manly voice, a more manly demeanor, because it's almost become ingrained, a kind of nasal, if you know what I mean. And it, you can pull yourself out of that, but it takes today effort, but it takes effort to pull yourself out of anything. It takes effort to pull yourself out of slouching. Imagine a day not so long ago, a hundred years ago, when in polite society, you didn't let your back touch the back of the chair during a visit. That's hard for me. I strive for it. But very often I find my back heading toward the back of the chair and I realize, straighten up, because this is not for appearance. It's for the love of my neighbor and the love of my God and the sense of my own dignity that I need to represent what I should represent. And of course, the higher the class, the more you had to represent. The higher the family, the more important to represent your name. And when those people were doing that, before the Hollywood mentality took over and the nobility adopted the ways of Hollywood, you had examples for everyone. And um, it infiltrated all of society with the role models. We don't. Etiquette books. We learn, we from, learn from, watching, from, watch. from watching, from watching people. Yeah, that's so true. And um,
0: I did want to ask you, Dr. Horvat, regarding the Christian personality. You mentioned Franciscan University, which I think does a lot today in disseminating. I, I would say a pretty noxious personality model for Catholics and. If we go back to Pope uh, Pius XII from a noble Italian family, great dignity and bearing, was also famous as the Pope that didn't smile.
1: Um, oh, yeah, and yeah. that's
0: not to say that uh, he veered into sternness, but there was a virtue of seriousness there, seriousness with amiability, a recognition that life is a tragedy, the, wo- the the fallen world is a tragedy, and that then we have following his papacy, that of John Twenty-Third, who was known as the Smiling Pope. And suddenly you have the Christian personality with World Youth Day, with the charismatic movement, with the Novus Ordo, a sort of youth ministry, goofball, overly amiable personality. You call it the American cult of
1: spontaneity. Yes. Do you know that um, you touched on a topic that probably should be a whole other talk. Because sacrality and seriousness, the role, the importance of having that seriousness, how it was lost, why it was lost, and how there's a tremendous need for its restoration, and how it's promoted by the false rights. Um, you have It's even in speeches. The day that the priests began to say, they began to tell priests, you have to start your sermon with a joke to make the people feel more at home. It's an absolute lie. You don't give a sermon by starting with a joke or inserting jokes. You give a sermon by giving the truth and speaking with the zeal and the passion and the truth and the confidence that you should have and the seriousness. When I started teaching at KU, Dr. Pliny told my brother to tell me, please remind her that most young people think that they will attract other young people by telling jokes and being funny. And I had have, I have that tendency to think, oh, they will like me so much more if I show how my tremendous sense of humor and how witty I am. And um, he said, it's not true. Today, people are searching for seriousness. They're looking for seriousness. And where they find it, because the whole world around them is so banal, so silly, so ridiculous, that when they see seriousness, it touches the soul. And it touches that part of the soul, of the the sacral. All of the Middle Ages kind of vibrate with the spirit of sacrality. What makes up the spirit is sacrality. He gave five rules for that. And perhaps this could be a talk for another day where we end today, because it should be a um, lure, a bait for those who who would like to be serious. Sacrality, one of the first characteristics of it, and this is not just in the religious sphere, but the temporal sphere. It's true in the religious sphere, but it's also true in the temporal sphere and when the temporal and religious are combined as they were in the middle ages walking hand in hand you had these five qualities appear in all in all of society i mean in both spheres one of the first um, one of the first notes of sacrality is seriousness and you can see what they did when they took the seriousness out of the church how nobody wanted to be in the church anymore it was re- it was, it's like going to a club, going to, a, going to school, going to a meeting. It's no longer had that vibe, that spirit of seriousness. You walk into a church from the Middle Ages and sit at, the mass, or sit at a mass, even in ours in a beautiful church today, one of the first things that touches the soul is the seriousness. And it's a welcome change from the ridiculous handshaking, peace-giving, dancing and singing, presentations that are made, or performances that are made in the Novus Ordo Church. And many young people can be convinced that the—we um, have several young ladies here at the house, and one of them told me, after my first Latin Mass, I knew it was right. And they didn't do any performance. All they did was have this liturgy imbued with, with that seriousness. The same thing is necessary in, in temporal society a spirit, the spirit of, seriousness. of seriousness. I'll go quickly through the second. The second is stability is part of sacrality. And once again, you had that in homes with furnitures that endured for centuries, with a ways and customs that had lasted from generation to generation. Even as we said, the shoes that gave stability instead of bouncing around, or those flip-flops that, sandals that men and women have both um, taken up for comfort and style instead of for the stability. It's incredible. You look at the shoes that St. Tresor Vizier wore, they were lace-ups, and they would take maybe three or four minutes to put on. But once you had them on, you couldn't slip in and out of them under the table. Mm-hmm. They were on you all day until you took them off, made the effort to take them off. But it forced you into a certain stability that was even represented in the dress. The coherence. There should be a coherence in the things that have superiority. And today we have a complete lack of coherence in the things around us, the way we act, the way we speak, and the ambience. So it's hard to be a coherent person without that coherence in the things around us. Um You could see um, coherence is even a distortion of shape, the modern art. There's no coherence in an art that doesn't have meaning. Then the modern cups, the modern plates, the modern, everything takes on something that lacks a coherence that before existed and gave developed the coherence inside of person. The last, the last, the fourth is contrary contraritory, which is the things that move you toward either the good and the true, the bad um, I'm sorry. The Good and, and the Evil, Truth, truth and Error, and, error. and um, what is the third um, Truth, Error, Good, Beautiful, poker, there. and let's skip. Beauty, the Beauty and the Horrendous? Yes, Ugly, the Beautiful and the Ugly. And when you have those sharp differences that make people able to understand, you love the good better, you love the beauty better. Today, there's been a mix. Even in children's toys, you can see the dolls became ugly, starting around the 17th. became ugly, or they became sensuous, and both bad, tendentially, for a child. But then they destroyed a whole notion of what is beautiful and what is ugly. So that today you have young people who have no sense of the beautiful. You need that sense of contrariety to have sacrality, and they've done the same with truth and error. So all of those, that sense of contrariety, should be expressed in what you wear, how you act, and the things around you for a sacred society, just like for a sacral church. And funny, the last one was that one I spoke of before: austerity or holocaust. We should be a spirit of holocaust in something that's sacred, so that a person can be sacred, can have a sacral bearing, department, deportment, way of being, because they carry in him also a sense of that sacrifice and holocaust itself instead of just a constant self-indulgent, egoism. So you, I believe that every saint has a sacrality in bearing, which is what attracted him, and finally you come to that because they were a modeling themselves after the one who had the supreme sacrality our lord jesus christ who if he walked into a room he would attract the good even sometimes the bad would be attracted beyond themselves even if they hated him they couldn't his his goodness was so immense it carried an attraction that is a sacrality that the med- medieval man and woman Strove for because their model was our Lord Jesus Christ and our Lady. But that's probably a good place to end. You could see that's a topic in itself.
0: Yes, and I would be honoured to to discuss with you, to hear from you again for a, for future broadcast uh, on that uh, that fascinating topic, um, Dr. Horvat. I, if there is time, I would like to just ask you one final question. Which is related to our own time and the the tendencies we see at the moment. We we live in the midst of the fourth
1: revolution, the
0: postmodern anarchic tribal revolution. Yes. And so I wanted to ask, what tribal tendencies you, have you noticed in contemporary customs, and also what effect is the mass wearing of masks having on the sociability of western people the obscuring of the imago day man's noblest
1: uh, feature absolutely i think you you as you asked the questions you gave the answers to that one the tribalism of course leads to the loss of the good individualism of man it returns to that tribal mentality that ultimately the tribes were run by the witch doctors who were in the th- and today you see more and more people centering themselves around a guru in a tribal mentality unwilling to think or act for themselves. This is the new, what they're in, they've been indoctrinating children in for the last 50 years in the schools, group thinking instead of individual thought, group act, So that you're unable to act outside of the group. It was what Rousseau predicted for the future that man, the only man who would not fit in, man would be so conditioned to fit in that they would not be able to stand out and be distinct. And that's how society would be controlled. Wasn't this exactly the the, the necessary preparation, which again shows how the revolution is planned? And the preparation was made in the teaching of the last 50 years in public as well as catholic schools to prepare for a tribe mentality so you can accept the mask rule the um when it comes time you have to wear the mask there's no thinking outside the circle there's no asking for reason. you put on your mask and you further annihilate your individuality the personality that god meant and gave you a distinct personality that you are called to reflect some aspect of him each one of us in an individual way what would the devil like to do is wipe that out efface from us the image of god and that reflection that we are supposed to make of him the um rule; these all these new rules are kind of like a final step that's been taking place we could say for the last several hundred years and then where we are much less individuals, personalities, the people. There used to be whole families, you could read, that reflected a certain way of being. Regionalism is one aspect of that. Today, we want one mass man that all thinks the same. The role, the, the model ideal for the UN, for Agenda 21 or 22, whatever it is, There's to do away with every drop of the glory that man is meant to give to God through a way of developing the own personality. You can see how the mask and all of this is playing into this in a metaphysical way, but it's a final step in a long process. What was, we've talked about the fourth revolution, but Dr. Punio spoke about the next revolution that would inevitably come, and that is Satanism, the open adoration of Satan. Something I never dreamed 40 years ago that could happen, that society would actually tolerate. But today there's almost an embracing Satanism inside society. And the devil's reaching what he always aims to do and knows he can't do, which is to be adored by man and replace God. He knows he will not. And he knows the time is limited before Our Lady steps in and makes her grand intervention and crushes him under her feet so he's making every i believe the revolution's moving very quickly today with these new um, faster than normal because there is a crystallization that takes place in some people when you move fast why is he moving so fast risking this crystallization because perhaps his time is short and he knows it and he wants to take as much from God and the glory of God as he can in this last period. I hope and pray that's the case, because it would mean that we're very close to the intervention of Our Lady in society. And the beginning, I believe that one of the signs of the beginning is a talk like this, that young people like you are willing to listen to the hope of building a new society, not just a new building Catholic Church with a Catholic liturgy but the whole society that reflects that liturgy and that takes up those same qualities of sacrality, including the Holocaust. And in that Holocaust, I believe one way to start is in self-discipline that was demanded by the customs, the bearing, the decorum of the past. Mm.
0: Ave Maria, that's uh, a lovely note to uh, end our discussion on Dr. Horvat, It's been a great pleasure and a great honour and I hope that we can speak again soon.
1: It was a great privilege for me also to be on your your program. I hope it grows and many people come to know the Counter-Revolution and are inspired by the programs that you make.
0: God willing, thank you.